Welcome everyone to today's devotion. I hope I hit all the right buttons. Um, I'm doing this from home today uh, for, for various reasons. Um, but we are in 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 2 Peter is only three chapters long. Uh, so we're already uh, two-thirds of the way through the book uh, by the end of uh, today's devotion. So um, uh, not, not, not too bad. Actually, I, I love 2 Peter. It's a, it's a book oftentimes overlooked. Um, one of the reasons is because of its uh, similarity to Jude, particularly to Peter 2. Um, if you're interested, starting this Wednesday for the next four weeks, we'll be doing it in person and online at East Frankfurt Baptist Church. I'm going to be teaching through uh, the book of Jude. Jude is only one chapter long. It's got a lot of controversy around it, uh, particularly when it comes to source criticism and uh, and other issues. Um, and one of the things we'll talk about is how similar the entire book of Jude is to 2 Peter 2. Uh, there's a lot of overlap. Uh, it's, it's not a verbatim copy at all, but it's very, very, very similar. In fact, I believe after we're done with 2 Peter, we'll be in Jude in our devotion. So that would mean Wednesday we'll be in Jude. And starting Thursday, I believe we're starting Revelation. So um, with that said, one of the things you may recall from, from Friday, and, and we linked the uh, YouTube uh, up up on our Facebook page, um, that uh, it's, it's about false teaching have crept into the church, right? And, and one of the issues for Peter is holiness. Uh, you, we've been called to holiness. We're called to persevere through suffering. Um, but one of the challenges to that is uh, false teaching. And in Second Peter 2, he deals with the false teachers. Now, uh, one of the things I argue is that uh, Peter is suggesting that they are coming. Jude, who is very similar, is is arguing that they they've already come right so peter's looking for and jude is looking uh really in the present uh but that's a matter of, of some debate uh but let's just see see what he what he says here not just what it is they are teaching we can get some of that from this text but really what comes from their teaching that's what peter is is most concerned with here he says in verse one um False prophets also rose among the people, so much of this chapter takes us back to the Old Testament. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, notice a couple of things he says here. One is that false teaching at his root uh, brings with a destructive heresy. So when he deals with the practical realities of these false teachers, for example, um, um, their sensuality. It's going to, going to be a, a major emphasis of this chapter. He's arguing that um, it, it, even though it, it's tempting for us to just say they need, to ch they need to change and fix their morality, Peter says, no, the problem isn't morality, it's theology. The morality will fix itself when the theology is on um, solid ground. Um, and so in this chapter, he's going to show the, the dangers of their morality, but it's rooted in a bad theology. So they bring in destructive heresies. It's, it's a just generic. He doesn't give us anything specific. Um, denying the master who bought them. So, so clearly this is a Christological heresy. It's a soteriological heresy. That is, it's a heresy having to do with the right understanding of Christ and a right understanding of salvation. And um, so there's a lot of debate as to what exactly does Peter have in mind here. And I don't see any reason why we should get into that conversation. But um, you see that uh, this language of master and Lord shows up in Jude. Uh, but this will become an issue. He'll come back to it at the end of this chapter. Because at the end of the day, we are either 
uh, slaves of Christ or we're slaves of the flesh. One leads to freedom, the other leads to tyranny, um, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So much of this chapter is about how God condemns and judges those who are guilty of sin, um, false teaching, and um, ungodly living. Uh, it goes on down. Uh, notice the two issues he looks at. Verse 2, he points out their doctrine of sensuality. In verse 3, their doctrine of greed. And so he's saying that their, their theology is manifesting itself in these two areas, greed and uh, Jude will use the term licentiousness. Um, and uh, it's a great word. We just don't use it enough. Uh, so those two areas, uh, greed and sensuality, well, that's been the history of humanity, right? If you leave humanity to it to himself, he will go in these two directions, sensuality and greed. Sometimes one over the other, oftentimes it is both. And the end of verse 3 says, Their condemnation from a long ago is not idle. Their destruction, their destruction is not asleep. Um, so what you're going to get from here on out, or for the most part, is judgment language. And he does that by going back to the Old Testament, saying, look, God has consistently condemned these activities, sensuality and greed, and they've shown up throughout the Old Testament. So verse 4, he points to um, the angels who sinned. It's a clear reference to Genesis 6. There's a lot of debate as to how Genesis 6 should be understood. We'll talk about it more in our Wednesday night Bible studies uh, in a few weeks. Um, but um, Peter is going with the assumption, uh, the interpretation, that uh, Genesis 6 is when the sons of God mix with the daughters of men, um, that what you have is uh, divine beings uh, mixing with human uh, women, right? Uh, and there's a whole theology and everything. I, I don't want to chase it. But but you need to note there, there is judgment upon those who are guilty. The angels God did not spare, right? But he sent them into judgment. Uh, but then he, then he notes, but he did spare in the ancient world Noah. So you need to know the issue isn't just with the angels, but it's all those who participated and joined them in this act of greed and sensuality. God condemned them. But he spared the righteous man and his family, Noah. Um, and then he points out in verse 6, uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he adds, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Right? So we're going to move from Genesis 6 uh, to Genesis um, 19. Um, and so you have a clear destruction upon uh, not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but I believe there's three other cities um, because of their open licentious sin. Then he adds... Um, he rescued righteous Lot. So much as he did with Genesis 6, he now does with Genesis 19, that um, though God condemned the ungodly, he preserved the godly, right? So when God is actively condemning sinners and judging them, he will preserve the righteous. Um, verse 8, for as that righteous man, Lot, lived among them day after day, same could be said of Noah, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So you have not only is, is Noah and, and Lot managing to live amid the ungodly without compromising their ungodliness, but seeing ungodliness was a source of mourning for them. Um, and, and that should really be the response of the believer, that we weep for the ungodliness around us because ungodliness is not freedom, it is destruction. 
right? And so, so he'll argue later that there is personal destruction that comes from it. But we also need to see there is divine destruction that comes from it. So that should be a source of mourning. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So notice that there is uh, um, God preserves the righteous. Uh, that is our hope in Christ. He, he, he condemns the ungodly. And he notes, particularly those who, who indulge in lust. Um, this is particularly heinous sin in, in the Bible. Well, he, he goes on um, to, to describe them in uh, some detail. It gives an idea of who they are, how they live. Uh, we don't have time to get into all that. Uh, verse 12, these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Now, that is strong language there. But when you think about it, um, take our culture, for example. What it is we promote is animalistic. In fact, um, I'm still in this from Russell Moore in his book on temptation. Every temptation is going to tell you simultaneous contradictory lies. One, you are a god. Um, therefore you're, you're, you know, the, there won't be consequences for you. Um, just follow your heart. Um, you know, nothing bad's going to come of it. You deserve it. You've been a good boy or girl, whatever. The other is you're just an animal. You just have to indulge yourself. You were born this way. Um, so on and so forth. And that language is picked up throughout the Bible and Peter picks up on it. Uh, they think they are, um, uh, uh, better than everyone else because they, they have these so-called liberating uh, doctrines. But the truth is they are irrational animals. They are creatures of instinct. They are born to be caught and destroyed. Um, and, and you think about it, that what is often promoted in our overly sexualized culture um, is animalistic. It is dehumanizing. Uh, rather than saying we are better than this, uh, it is a it is a theology of surrender we have in our culture. Uh, you are your identity, an identity that a tribalistic culture has given you, by the way. You didn't choose for yourself. Um, and uh, you're nothing more than that. You're just an animal. Therefore, indulge yourself because you're just an animal. Oh, don't worry. You're a divine being because, um, um, you know, if anyone tells you you shouldn't do it, they're a bigot. You're righteous. Um, he goes on. Um, they blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. See, look, there's consequences of the sin. And not only will they suffer, but the people around them will suffer. All right. Um, he goes on, verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Uh, right, this makes sense. I mean, of course, it describes our culture. It describes virtually every culture. Um, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So again, notice sensuality and greed are, are the two issues he's he's raising in this chapter. Forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. And then he compares them to Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing. And that's what he's saying that that is going on here. You have greed and sensuality people who are gaining from wickedness, uh, and they profit from it. Well, that is every human culture. But, but remember, this is the, his concern here isn't just morality, but theology. What is it that is driving this, this, this sort of stuff? And, and you notice that Peter is saying this is coming and will come into the church, um, and you must 
not allow it. You must stand firm in the doctrines of Christ. He goes on, verse 19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Right? This is, this is a really important theology that we have here, that when people proclaim freedom, liberation, but what they offer you is moral bondage, that's not freedom. That is dehumanizing slavery. The gospel comes and says, you are truly free. You're not defined by who you are, what you've done, and what your desires are. You're defined by who God has told you that you can be and are. Um, and so the gospel gives true freedom here. Um, what the world offers and what this bad theology offers is actually the opposite. And, and of course, much of liberalism has has promoted this this sort of stuff. Verse 22 um, is, he quotes from a proverb that a lot of people um, ignore. Uh, but he says, uh, but he goes on and says that well, the real problem is that many of them, um, they bought into slavery and then they came into the church and they were liberated only to go back to the slavery. And what they found was the slavery was worse, much like an addict that um, when they break free from that addiction, when they go back, it's often much worse than it was when they first left. And there's a reason that um, um, he, he says here in verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's a proverb we oftentimes overlooked, and how unfortunate it is that um, much as it is gross and grotesque, um, and and uh, for a dog to return to his vomit, and what it's taking in isn't good for it, so to those who return to their life of sin. They found liberty, but they want to go back to slavery. And there's a good biblical example of that. That's the people of Israel in the wilderness wanting to go back to Egypt. So anyway, so so that's what we have here. Bad theology leads to bad morality. So we've got to get our theology right, which you'll deal with in some detail in chapter 3. Hope to see you guys here tomorrow.